All right. Happy Tuesday, everyone. We are back with another Learning Tech Talks where we are exploring the landscape of learning and workplace technology. And uh, yeah, hopefully getting your questions answered, helping you expand your thinking about what's possible with the latest in tech. Today, we're talking about immersive. We're talking immersive tech, but in a, in a different way. We're going to bust some myths about whether you can use it for soft skills, power skills. We're not going to get into the whole debate about what word we want to use to describe it. Um, but we are going to get into that, talk about how that can actually integrate into your ecosystem and how it may be easier than you think. So to help me with that, I'm joined by Alex Young, who is the CEO of Verti. And Alex, I'm, I'm, you're, you're, you're across the pond from me right now, right? I am. I'm over in Europe at the moment, so I'm a bit of a globetrotter. Okay. I was previously in New York, uh, and now I'm back over in Europe, where we're currently experiencing a heat wave, which is not quite as bad <laughs> as the United States, but uh, for Europe, where people complain about the weather, whether it's rainy or sunny, um, yeah, I'm bang in the middle of it, and great to great okay. to be on, Chris. Well, you know what? Yeah. Well, and that's where it was funny when we first, before we were going live, you mentioned New York, and then you told me the temperature in Celsius, and it, it it honestly threw me for a bit. I'm like, wait a minute, Celsius? Aren't you in New York? So that's that's so you're overseas, and actually, I was talking to David James the other day, and I had heard about the heat wave y'all are experiencing. So um, it's yeah, I think you said you spent some time in Texas, so they probably wouldn't consider it a heat wave; they just consider it spring or something like that, <laughs> right? <laughs> Oh, so so I'm where I always am in Waukesha, Wisconsin. And uh, so as we get started with this, like I said, we're talking about immersive change and and really kind of the future of immersive tech. But give give us a little bit of background on who you are and how you got into this, because your background is originally in healthcare. So healthcare to immersive tech and learning and development. But there is when you explained it to me, I'm like, OK, I can see how the connections fit. Oh, that's good because sometimes I, I forget. It's a bit of a weird and wonderful story. <laughs> but uh, my, uh, my, my background is, is, as you correctly said, it's in healthcare. I trained as a doctor. I specialized in orthopedic surgery in the UK. Also spent some time um, on the Upper East Side at HSS in Manhattan as well. Um, and I also uh, have a degree in education as I'm a bit of a learning nerd. And my mum is a now retired school teacher. Um, so I've always had some kind of genetic predisposition to, to education. And when I worked in When you went to med school, did you think you would end up doing more on the education side? Or did you think you'd end up specializing in orthopedic and you'd be in the OR? Did you have a feeling one way or the other? Or did it just kind of figure itself out? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question about careers in general. I mean, I think for me, I was yeah. very lucky and I did my work experience with an orthopedic surgeon. I was probably one of the few people in healthcare who knew immediately uh, at the age of kind of 17, 18, that, that that was the thing that I wanted to do. I just thought it was amazing, um, where a lot of my friends were, you know, looking at different careers, whether it was uh, working as a uh, you know, physician or in a, you know, as, as kind of family doctor in family medicine. Um, but yeah. I was very much set on a career in surgery. Okay. Okay. All right. So you, but you didn't expect that you'd end up in the education space that that was not like part of the original plan or was it? No, it, well, again, really interesting points on kind of learning education. You know, if you think about um, healthcare uh, in the United Kingdom, uh, it's around about sort of a six year medical undergrad degree. We do our okay. medical training straight out of high school, basically, where 
uh, in the United States, a little oh, bit more kind of okay. postgraduate. So yeah, you get yeah. uh, a little bit more mature, I suppose, when you go into things. But <laughs> re re regardless of where you study medicine, there's a heck of a lot of content that you have to learn there is. In, in quite a short space of time with some high stakes and lots of big exams. So I always jokingly say to people that although I obviously spent a lot of money and went to medical school and learned how to be a doctor and then a surgeon, actually, the most valuable skills I learned were how to learn and how to uh, develop my own soft skills and lead teams and do things like that. So for me, those were really probably the most important translatable things I learned, um, okay. whereas surgery was what I learned to do sort of as a day-to-day -day job. Okay. Okay. So then though, at some point, because you mentioned that you were doing a lot of entrepreneurship stuff while you were, were doing this. So at some point you, you kind of made the shift and said, I, I'm actually going to go into kind of a development learning tech space. How did that shift happen? Yeah, for sure. So um, again, because medicine is a, a long uh, undergraduate degree, uh, and it's you got a little bit of time uh, there. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. And uh, you know, I, I was also conscious that a lot of my friends, uh, as in any kind of you know university or undergrad degree, you go and get a, a job on the side to sort of help pay your way through, get some extra cash. Um, I was naturally quite a lazy person, uh, so I didn't want to <laughs> grind, grind, and get a side job. Um, instead, I was sort of thinking about how I could. Uh, develop elements of a passive income um, or do something that was sort of very much in my passion. And um, the original kind of business that I put together was uh, really sort of- I like that on. you I like that you say putting together a business with some passive income was like the lazy route of doing it. I, <laughs> yeah. that, I, I don't know. I guess you could interpret it that way, but I think that's pretty uh, innovative. So, okay, sorry. I told you I was going to jump in. <laughs> oh, no, it's good. Well, it, it keeps me on my toes. And I think uh, certainly when I was I was sort of planning out some of these businesses uh, as, a, as a medical student, um, I was thinking about sort of the things that I enjoyed doing. And I was naturally quite okay. an organized person um, and basically fell into a business that really organized uh, in-person learning events. And that was originally okay. uh, for, for other medical students uh, and then for doctors. And then um, my company got quite um, well known in the United Kingdom for organizing uh, conferences and things like that. And it eventually expanded out into doing events for pharma. Um, and okay. th through this kind of slightly strange journey for a medical student, I sort of had to teach myself business, had to teach myself marketing, also ended up teaching myself web uh, development and web design. So um, when that company uh, was was basically picked up by by somebody without me knowing any business skills and without us really registering it as a business until quite late in that process. Um, I had all these extra skills uh, from a business point okay. of view, and so my my next company, uh, which I uh, did when I had graduated and I was working as a, a junior doctor or a resident, um, was all about online learning for doctors and nurses okay. because even when you graduate, you're still you still have to do lots and lots of exams. Yeah. But now it's around your day job; you have to pay for those exams yourself. Uh, it's hugely tiring. It's hugely taxing. And certainly when I did uh, my surgical exams, there weren't a huge amount of resources out there. So um, my kind of first foray, I suppose, into online learning uh, beyond in-person courses was very much things like digital question banks, uh, video-based courses. Um, and this was something in the region kind of seven or eight years ago now, um, which is where I saw a lot of the problems innate to uh, e-learning and digital learning uh, in right. the healthcare sector. Well, and it's interesting. I've spent a good chunk of time in the healthcare sector and a, a lot of time around physicians. And I mean, physicians, especially there's, you've got two extreme ends of the spectrum. I mean, there's a whole lot of head educational knowledge that you have to, you have to absorb and, and pack in there. But then there's also a lot of practical 
hands-on application stuff. And historically under traditional methods, that, that was a pretty big divide. It was like, well, you spend a ton of time in the classroom packing all this stuff in your head, try and retain it long enough to pass the test so that you can actually get to a point where you're spending time actually putting this stuff into action. So I can see there's a fair amount of inefficiency in that process. And it sounds like you saw that and went, I think we can do better. <laughs> Is well, that fair? I, I, completely. And I, I think it's even more, uh, you know, important than, uh, than the way you sort of outlined it there, because if you, you know, I, I just always go back to the story of, um, my first day on the surgical wards as a new doctor. So uh, yeah. I've been through my kind of six years of med school. I'd learned all the theory. I'd passed all the exams. I'd done the practical exams. I'd been into a hospital. I knew what to do. But actually, when you're there and you're responsible for patients, the whole dynamic completely changes. And the stress and emotion of going in, either resuscitating a patient or attending to someone who's very unwell completely yeah. throws that learning into a whole new dynamic. And you have to... No, and, and this isn't knowledge. like... Well, and that's just it. I mean, in many cases, you're playing in a life and death type situation. It's not, it's not, I went into the office and I was a little nervous because it was the first, and not to diminish that, that can be a terrifying experience for an employee anyway. I'm going into this first meeting and a new job. I may not be comfortable. You're talking about, I'm going in and dealing with a patient who may be in car, you know, having in cardiac arrest and what I do may save their life or it may end their life type of a thing. That's a level of pressure that, uh, <laughs> it's not necessarily something everyone is dealing with on their first day on the job. Absolutely. And, and as you rightly say, you know, not to diminish um, what other people uh, no. experience on, on their onboarding. And, and I think the, uh, I, I always go back to, you know, rather than thinking about uh, necessarily like a life or death situation, which hopefully provided your hospital is good, shouldn't be happening every single day or, or on your first day. Right. It might do, but, but often the scary bits are just the practical things like what cupboard are the, uh, syringes kept in um you know who yes. do i go to to ask for this blood test and it's equivocal to if you are a new salesperson coming into uh, like a new crm at your new office um or whether you're a learning designer and you you, you know you're not familiar with the software yeah. that your new company is using all these things cause anxiety all of them call, cause poor performance and all of them can be improved by better training and onboarding okay no and i think i'm, I'm actually glad you brought that up because i think sometimes we look at certain professions or certain industries and say, oh, well, it's all, it's all like this. We don't deal with that in this realm. But a lot of the instances, you, it's like, well, there's a lot of just practical stuff that are the same things that give people stress and anxiety and make them be poor performers in new, in new roles because they don't know where to find things. They don't know how to engage in conversations or they struggle with, I just think of new managers. You, you've got a new team of people and you aren't really sure what to say or how to have a conversation with them. And those are things everybody's dealing with. That's not limited to high stakes, you know, high risk positions. Completely. Okay. And I, I, I think some, you know, some of those kind of more personal aspects where, where it is either conversation based or, you know, you're yeah. integrating a unity often actually, funnily enough, can be more scary in some respects than life or death situations because, as humans, you know, we're social animals and, and we naturally don't want to lose any social capital rights. So, you know, often those that's, things are- That's true. That is true. Because like, right, those those relational ones are the ones that are like, if you bomb that, I mean, you got to, that person's going to remember it. You're going to have to interact with that person after that. That can be a terrifying, terrifying experience, which kind of going back to this conversation and, and Liz, I appreciate you commenting in on this, but she talked about this, this whole like translatable skills. I think 
that's like I said, the whole conversation on what kind of words we talk about, but that's what we're talking about are these interpersonal skills that we have that translate across, whether you're a physician, whether you're a new manager, whether you're in corporate IT, it doesn't matter. You still have to use these skills. So let's talk about what Verti is. Cause obviously you said, all right, I, I did all this. I knew I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. I, I did this. I went down this path. I saw the gap. I said, I think we can do better. So why not leverage technology to do it? Because I think there's a way to do it. So you created Verti. So when people say, all right, you created Verti or you run this company called Verti, how do you describe it to people? What do you say it is? Yeah, so really great question. And it's, uh, if I always sort of start with the problem and we've kind of nicely okay. outlined it, which is um, if you've got sort of the knowledge and you practice skills, really when you go into a real world environment, it's that application point, which is you know the top of Bloom's taxonomy. It's the most important setting. Um, yeah. And it's, it's often the piece which keeps people most stressed. And what I wanted to do with Verti was really create a digital online system that allowed people to practice repeatedly in safe environments, any of the things we've, we've just mentioned from soft skills uh, to elements of practical skills uh, and really do that repeatedly and safely before it happens. So what Verti itself is, therefore, uh, it's a, an online digital platform which combines elements of interactive video, computer-generated virtual humans, as we call them, which we can dive into more in a second, as well yeah. as feedback uh, to assess how people are doing. Um, and that operates on desktop on mobile devices and in virtual reality headsets um, so that when people jump into these scenarios uh, they're immersed in realistic lifelike scenarios um, where they can be assessed safely under pressure recreating that emotion of, of being there uh, for real uh, but without any of the implications of making mistakes um, and we okay. offer off-the-shelf content so people can jump in and get started straight away knowing that a lot of uh, learning designers are very very busy but we also offer, offer a suite of uh, authoring tools across video and these virtual humans so that people can edit them and create them to their own uh, bespoke needs. Okay. So just, just for the sake of folks who are listening or watching or listener watch at a later time, you know, lest, lest you hear immersive learning and go, oh, well, we don't have headsets. So we're not going to get into that. This is what we're talking about. Yes, you could, you could pull this up in here and you could do it in a fully immersive environment, but you don't have to. And I think that's where, you know, the term I use is hybrid VR, where yes, you can do it in a device, make it fully immersive, but you don't have to. And I think that's an important distinction because I do think sometimes people shy away from immersive because they think, well, we just don't have the infrastructure. We don't have the technology to do it. So we'll talk more about how this works and actually how it integrates into your existing learning tech stack. Um, but I do, before we get into it, want to spend a little bit of time talking about this this sweet spot you're talking about where you've maybe educated yourself to enough that in your head cognitively you go i i i get the gist of it but you haven't <laughs> you haven't necessarily done it yet and you aren't necessarily super comfortable and i've got a post planned for tomorrow to talk a little bit about i'm going through this journey with myself right now with my kids we're learning to skateboard and we I didn't get that sweet spot. There was no like watch the YouTube video, practice it before you go out and then face plant on the pavement type <laughs> of a thing. There was no like training wheels aspect of this. But I want to talk about that a little bit because you and I said this before we went live. I don't know that there's enough recognition to the value of that kind of 
integrated space between, all right, you're, you're on your own and like, well, I know it, but I've got a bit of a Dunning-Kruger. I'm probably a little overconfident in how well I can do this. And actually, I haven't actually done it yet. Completely. And, and there's, there's a few things, I guess, to kind of unpick there. I think, uh, you know, the, the first thing to say is uh, you're absolutely right. If you've been through any kind of training or you've been certified or signed off, just like I was in medicine when I graduated as a doctor, I got my shiny new stethoscope, my name badge said doctor. <laughs> um, I, felt, I felt probably overly confident. Uh, Put me in the OR. I'm ready to go. <laughs> exactly right. And again, you know, just a kind of a little story for medicine there. Um, I remember the first time when I was a little bit later in my training, when I started doing my, my own operations by myself without uh, any kind of supervision. Um, just even in that aspect where you know the steps of the operation, you've been supervised, you've done it, say, um, you know, 20, 30 times, even just being by yourself the variability that can crop up in an operation. So say the patient yeah. drops their blood pressure, say their anatomy is slightly different. Say you're working with a new diverse operating team who you've not communicated with before. There are all these little variables that come in that you, you are never a hundred percent certain about. And it's that uncertainty that often causes people to make errors. Um, if you look at a lot of the research in healthcare, a lot of the avoidable mistakes aren't necessarily down to the technical aspects, i.e. for surgery, uh, making a cut or stitching something up. Often it's the interpersonal dynamics of leadership, knowing how to make the correct decision if a patient drops their blood pressure, being a confident communicator. Um, and it's those things that often go a little bit forgotten in traditional, uh, any type of training really, but especially medical training. Um, so I might do what's called simulation training in a high fidelity simulation suite um, where there is a mannequin uh, and some trainers there. I might do role play, uh, practicing communication skills like breaking bad news. But when you actually get there in real life, it's very, very different. And I think very different. That, that, that kind of what I would describe as mid fidelity is where technologies like virtual reality or like interactive video sit and can really solve a huge problem for people because not only are they actually upskilling people they're also making your team more confident to then go and perform when it matters. And yeah. know, just, just, just going back in the conversation, um, we, you know, we obviously don't just operate in healthcare. We also operate no. in everything from kind of sales and onboarding. And um, you know, for anyone listening who does sales training, again, medical device reps, pharma reps, and, and sales professionals who sell into medical organizations, they have it really tough because they've got to go into places like an operating department, right? Where you've, yeah. got, you've got some scary looking surgeons. You're not allowed to touch any, anything in the operating field um, because you might desterilize it. Um, you know, it, it's very, very intimidating. It's a completely new foreign environment. Um, but if you can be put through that in something like VR, uh, where you practice it, where you're put through difficult situations. When you get there, you're more relaxed, you're more likely to do well, you're less likely to make errors, um, and your whole employee experience is therefore better. And I think that's, for me, always been the most important thing. Well, and I think your point with this um, that that really stands out that I, I think we, do, we take for granted, and I get why, right? Because I think sometimes it's easy to look back at, well, we aren't doing this and, and it's because, and you can come up with a list of like negative reasons, but in many regards, it's not necessarily, we didn't want to, because what you're talking about there is that you build confidence. Like you said, technically you may do the same thing, but even the slightest change in your environment can slow down your confidence in being able to do it. Cause you just, well, I haven't done it exactly quite like that. I remember when I was a math teacher, 
you would teach people how to execute an equation and they could do that one. But you change one variable in there and you would literally see them just go, I, I don't I don't even know where to start type. And it just took. All right. We're going to keep switching this up now in a math equation. That's not terribly time and cost you know, limited because it's like, well, we're just going to change this. But you start talking about real world situations, the type of simulation you're talking about, being able to do that for people and, oh, we're going to bring in a new team and we're going to flip the OR around and then we're going to run the scenario again. And we're going to keep doing this a hundred times till you feel like you can just do that's prohibitive for people to do not only just from a location standpoint, which is only getting worse as we move into this hybrid world, but just from a cost and time standpoint. And I can see where being able to make those mild tweaks to build people's confidence is huge. And when it comes down to it, you can send somebody into whatever environment and they have the confidence because they know the technical execution. They've now been in enough situations that they, they can make, they can adapt and learn and go. Com completely right. And it's, it's a fantastic point you bring up, actually. Math is a great example because, again, I like to sort of, you know, simplify things and bring it back. We're talking about potentially you know, complicated or complicated sounding technologies like virtual reality or the metaverse, these buzzwords that fly around. But from my, from, you know, from, from, from my perspective, if you bring it back to basics, what were you describing there with, with a math problem? Well, you're taking someone from, first of all, understanding let's say what a plus symbol means. That's your, you know, again, I'll use Bloom's taxonomy for, for simple learning terms. That, that's sort of your bottom of the taxonomy, understanding what the symbols mean. Then yep. you, you, you move your way up and you're showing people with worked examples how to actually apply a calculation. And that's then putting a little bit more kind of cognitive load onto people, enough to kind of stress them, enough to then help them to learn and, and, and actively recall what to do, but not too much to overload them. And then you go into an exam where they have to go and do it completely by themselves. Um, and it's exactly the same kind of learning pedagogy that applies to technologies like virtual reality. You know, where is your worked example when you go and do a sales conversation for the first time? Um, well, it's probably either if you've done any kind of sales coaching or practice with a peer, um, but perhaps that isn't enough. Perhaps that's just a one off. And if you've got technology like VR or even just um, interactive video based training, you can do that repeatedly. You can work with these work examples at your own pace. Most importantly, for your trainer or manager, they can see your progression and they can see whether you are within a standard deviation of acceptable or whether you are outside that and might need a little bit more help or personalized support. So I think those are the really interesting and exciting things around the variability. How can we standardize some of these things like we've touched on, like, uh, you know, how to give a performance review properly? Like, yeah. You know, what are, the, what are the standards for that, right? Well, and I think this is one of the things, and this is where I want to go next with this, that gets into this whole power, human, soft, transferable, whatever word you want to call it, skills that historically have been very difficult to measure because it really was, well, I, can we really do? And that's, to me, one of the beauties of where technology is going is we actually have the power now to measure whether people are improving or whether they're delivering well or poorly. We can actually define that and actually measure. So I do want to talk about that though, because sometimes you talk to folks about, and I, I have no doubt you've encountered this when you say, hey, we can do this on soft skills. I've seen people go, ah, I don't know about immersive technology on soft skills. I get it on somebody practicing how to walk through a work instruction or defusing you know, a nuclear reactor, things like that. But having a conversation 
how does that work? So I am curious, you obviously spend a lot of time in that. How do you help people think about that? Because it is a real resistant and a detractor to immersive tech, and I've seen it. Yeah, I, th I think there's a lot of confusing terminology thrown around. You know, I mentioned the metaverse two seconds ago, which in my opinion is, is very much a marketing term, which has been yep. you know, thrown out to encapsulate a number of different technologies. But for what we're talking about with virtual reality specifically, for soft skills training, uh, in, in my opinion, what you're doing there is you're doing a couple of things from a learning point of view. So first of all, um, when you learn anything new, you need to engage your learner and you need to grab their attention and focus. And if you've got a virtual reality headset on, it de facto blocks out any distractions um, because it's taking out, you know, a lot. It of your does. Senses, I, right? I tell people that all the time. I'm like, you don't see the value in a headset. Just watch their distractions disappear. The, just the natural distractions of, oh, my iWatch went off or my phone's buzzing or I have this browser tabs dinging at me. It's very powerful in that sense. Co completely. And, and so, you know, that's one aspect of good encoding and memory formation, uh, that, that focus and that grabbing focus. people's attention. And then if you think about how... Um, you, your brain kind of filters experiences on a day-to-day -day basis. It filters things based on emotion and your stress response. So, uh, you know, if you do something regularly, like walk to the shops, you might not remember the color of the dog you've seen unless it evokes a particularly strong memory, like it's similar to your childhood dog. And typically, yeah. you know, we remember things that are either very good or very bad. So you might remember your wedding day. You might hopefully, uh, you know, uh, remember your wedding day. Uh, you might also remember a funeral <laughs> or, a, or a or a poor event. Um, so, th what virtuality there can do is really tap into emotions because uh, yeah. we, as I suppose learning designers, have the ability quite uniquely in in a VR environment uh, to really own the space that people are putting. Yeah. Whether that's recreating a, a stressful. Um, business meeting, whether it's recreating an operating theater, we control that and, and we can standardize that, um, which yeah. often you can't if you're just doing kind of uh, call coaching and feedback. Uh, in, in you know, it's way. interesting you bring this up. And for anybody who hasn't read this, Nick Shackleton Jones wrote a book called How People Learn. And he talks about this tie of emotion to memory and the connection between this and how often that gets overlooked in learning. And I think really focusing in on this, this is an important component when we think about learning design that people actually encoding memory is very much tied to the emotional response and the emotions that they have tied to that experience. And that, that matters. That matters a lot, which is actually why I think a lot of times people remember terrible, terrible like learning experiences. They remember them. They're the worst experience, but it's like, it was so bad. I remember how frustrated or whatever I was. So it actually locked it, locked <laughs> it into my brain because it was just an awful thing. But I think that's one of the things. And yes, immersive is, is fantastic for that, but that's a new area for our industry to really focus on because I don't know that we've always historically done a great job of saying, well, emotionally, how are we actually making people feel as part yeah. of this experience? And, and I think, you know, just sticking at that kind of encoding uh, side of, of uh, you know, memory formation, the other really interesting thing we can do there with emotions is in virtual reality, we don't just have to have the person in their own skin, in their own avatar, yeah. where in, in a role play scenario, you are, there's no way around that. Um, whereas in virtual reality, you can put them into an avatar 
um, and perhaps you show something like a mirror in a computer-generated scene, um, or perhaps in a, a 360 video, for example, um, the person who is is their own avatar is a different race, a different sex, a you know, different gender, um, whatever it is that can transport them into that other person's perspective. And I think that can suddenly unlock a huge amount of value, um, especially when you're training things like uh, how to identify bias, um, how to... Uh, you know, really optimize people's communication delivery in um, a, a remote, multinational, multicultural setting um, where people who, not through any fault of their own, uh, may just have some inherent biases, particularly in things like yeah. interviewing processes where you might not know that you're scoring a certain candidate one way. And suddenly when the roles are reversed and you are the candidate and an interviewer is asking you some questions which put you on the back foot or perhaps they're not looking at you uh, in the yeah. scenario suddenly you feel, gosh, I've never felt this before. Um, I, I mustn't do that again in the future. And I think that yeah. those are some of the really exciting kind of emotional things that you can unlock with, with VR, that, that kind of encoding side. Well, and, and you bring that piece up and I, I, immediately what pops into mind is, <laughs> it's not a good example, is I don't know if you've ever seen the US version of The Office, but yes. there's a version <laughs> where, you know, where he's, they're putting the cards on their head going around trying to, you know, role play, it's first of all, one, don't ever do that. Don't ever do that. <laughs> but I think your point of it's not an authentic way. I can say, oh, pretend I'm this as we're doing this role play interaction. It's not real. I'm still, I still am the person on the other end of this that you're interacting with and, and telling me, no, just pretend I'm not. That doesn't actually create the cognitive disconnect you need to actually then immerse yourself in the experience. Well, I think that this is one of my big bugbears when we did communication uh, training or role play scenarios in healthcare, which was I am not uh, a particularly good actor uh, in, in any respects. And I was yeah. very much aware and conscious um, when these role plays were happening, and especially if you're in a group setting. Um, often people who are put into the uh, position of the, the learner there, they might hold back, they might deliberately not engage with the role play because of fear of judgment from their peers who are sat around them, um, or just because they're sort of stifled. Whereas if you're in a virtual reality environment, yes, yeah. it's computer generated. No, it's not completely uh, representative of what you're going to be doing in real life, but it is putting you in that scenario isolated by yourself um, and allowing you to sort of practice in a safe environment free of any judgment. And I think that's really, really important for a, you know, learner feedback and, and learner response. No, I think it's a big one. And, you know, I, I tend to work in just my, I'm not a researcher. I have lots of friends who are researchers and I count on them to give the research to either validate or disprove my, my experiences. But just in my experiences, I've seen people bring out more of the authentic version of how they really would be in a virtual world than they do in a simulated role play. Because if we talk about going back to psychological safety, Role-playing with people that I work with is not necessarily the most psychologically safe place to practice. I mean, you've got your peers, so there's a little bit of a com competitiveness going on. There's this, well, can I really trust these people? If what I say is wrong, is this going to get back to my manager? I mean, it's not the most safe environment to really let yourself be authentic. And what I've seen is just through experience that when you put people in that immersive, yes, like you said, there might be a little bit of, well, this feels, you know, vert computer CGI, which granted nowhere near what it did 
eight, 10 years ago when I was playing around with this stuff. Now it feels much more realistic than it ever has almost to a creepy level sometimes. Um, but even in those bad environments, it did draw out more authenticity from people because like you said, it, it, it felt real. It's like, well, it's definitely more real than talking to Alex, who I know is actually the guest on the show. And I'm not really going to, you know, get into it because it's too weird for me. Com completely. And I think, um, you know, as, as we kind of, I guess, move along that, that way that memories are, are retained and, and how we learn in general, the, the next kind of step there, once you have that kind of emotional connection, once you've had the attention to identify something as an important learning experience, it moves into your working memory or, you know, just beyond your short-term memory. Um, and that's when, unless we are using active recall and sort of testing ourselves, that could be forgotten. So again, one of the problems is yeah. you know, one-off training like a role play um, or even learning on the job. If you don't repeat that, you're, you're going to forget it just naturally with time. That's right. kind of you know, Ebinghouse's forgetting curve. And we know we've got to repeat things. We've got to test ourselves. And the beauty, again, of something like either virtual reality or you know, with something like our system, even just repeating it on mobile or on desktop, you can re revisit that. You can repeat it. And certainly when you're um, in these soft skills environments, you're actively having to think about the best course of action, uh, the best phrases, the best way to approach a conversation. And what we actually do is we will use both free form uh, and also multiple choice style options when they're in one of these conversation dialogues with an avatar so that depending on the, the level of uh, the learner and their experience, either we might say, okay, here are the three options one is the best yeah. one one is the most empathetic and in those scenarios for the trainers and the the teachers we can actually see across an organization a an almost like a learning path through the conversation sure. so, if, so if you imagine anyone watching or listening um that you've got a sort of a, a conversational tree you can imagine that if you put your entire workforce through it um the, a majority of them are going to choose say particular stages or, or branches through that tree and you can see where uh, a lot of your workforce is going um, equally okay. if you open up the freeform section which works a little bit like an amazon alexa um, they can say and communicate whatever they like uh, to these avatars and the avatars use natural natural language processing and machine learning uh, to then identify what's been said and respond back um, and that's when it gets really, really interesting, because if you're doing something like giving a performance review, for example, um, you might want a, an area where you build rapport. You might then want to give a safety net. You might then want to uh, give the good news, uh, if it's positive feedback yeah. or, or bad news, if it's negative feedback in a safe way uh, that really gets the message across. And we can then start as learning designers, you know, breaking that down, adding things like points and objectives for people to get through. Most importantly, um, I think we, you know, we touched on this at the top of the conversation, Chris, we're not trying to run entire conversations there. We're trying no. to focus in on key bits. No. It might be, you know, opening a sales conversation. It might be closing a sales conversation. It might be, yeah. you know, uh, de-escalating an angry employee or something like that. And, and you build that up and run it through as a syllabus or a course. And I think that's, what's very exciting for us. Well, and I think, um, so I want to get into, uh, I'm going to answer, we're going to, I'm going to bring up your question, Liz. So don't worry, I'm, I'm going to do that here. But, uh, and then I want to dig into how it actually works, right? Because I think sometimes people are like, okay, conceptually, maybe I get this, but like, how does this actually fit into our ecosystem? And I want to make sure we highlight the three chunks that you have. Um, so before I do that, I'll do Liz's. But I think one of the things that's really fascinating as we've been having this conversation is, I don't think we always remember 
And I don't think there's always a great enough appreciation for how challenging it is to actually learn something new or change a behavior. This is not, I mean, we're talking about the challenge even to get it into working memory, let alone get it to stick and actually have it stick with you. Just even getting it there is a Herculean effort in and of itself. Now you try and get that beyond. This is where I think sometimes when we look at the skill crisis going on in the industry and go, what can we do? What's the solution to quickly solve this? It's, I mean, this is hard work. If you're really, truly trying to build new skills in people, this is, this is hard work. But I think technology is taking what used to be what could feel like an impossible task and actually making it easy. Um, now, or easy, or I'm not going to say easy. So the question I want to bring up that Liz asked, and I, and I think what this is going to just piggyback off your last point, you know, there's a lot of talk about kind of this whole and, and whisper courses I've heard about uh, is this kind of a new term that's bubbling up, but almost this chunk spaced repetition. And I think what we're talking about, let's like actually unpack kind of one of these situations uh, as, as you think about this. So for people who might be going, huh, how does this work? Because you hit on it right at the end that when we're talking about developing soft skills in this or really any skills, you're not throwing someone into a four hour thing and going, all right, you're going to do this whole thing all at once, one time, and then we're going to call it good and see how you do it. You almost have to deconstruct the broader experience and say, all right, what are the different components that we need to build people's skills up in? And then how do we actually break that apart and let them surgically, see what I did there, focus on these pieces along the way and build it? So how do how do you help people actually do that? Cause that is not something that historically, I think a lot of times, if you look at soft skills training, a lot of them are, we bring people together for two days. We try and jam it all in and, and have them role play maybe at the end. And then we send them on their way and, and hope that it makes it back by the time they land the plane. Completely. And I, I think, you know, in terms of in-person courses or in-person role plays, that's always been my big bugbear as it has been. You know, I know with many people in the L&D sector is that, you know, your you're kind of corporate executives, which I guess I myself am, even though I run a learning company, uh, you know, you, you, you sort of you, you say we want our people to be more empathetic give them a course on empathy, tick, we've done it, our workforce must be more empathetic. And They're more empathetic now. Exactly. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, that's not how learning works. You, you're quite no. right. Is that, that, you know, things need to be kind of repeated. And I, I'd even take it a step further, which is if you think about actually learning on the job and learning in work, um, again, whether it is uh, communicating, whether it's your presenting skills, if you're presenting at a meeting, um, those are exceptionally variable. And there are some things which I term kind of infrequent, but high stress or high risk event so that might be you've got a very angry customer or someone you know in the healthcare setting it doesn't happen that often but happens more than we want where a, a patient or a patient's relative is violent towards a you know a member of the healthcare yeah. community and you have to de-escalate them using your communication skills and that is infrequent but but very high stress and so you need a way to sort of put people into these scenarios in in piecemeal and it's almost a little bit like exposure therapy in my opinion which is yeah. if you if you introduce people too quickly to these um high risk environments particularly again things like soft skills um or again i'll use healthcare if you're breaking bad news you're, you're breaking the news of a yeah. cancer diagnosis or something like that that can be very emotive you know the learner might have a family member who's been through that it might trigger some things in them and you've got to be thoughtful and mindful of of the individual going through it and so 
the, the best way to do it is to follow kind of almost CBT principles, which is you think about what you're trying to teach. So um, I would always start with uh, a syllabus uh, mapping to exactly what you want to teach. So if you want to teach the whole of soft skills, uh, you know, we, we've actually got a syllabus for that. But I, I would always break that down. So you might say um, we're going to focus on delivering a positive performance review. And in that scenario, we're going to break that down into objectives, which is how to open it, the middle and how to close. And then you schedule that in our system that that is, that is basically done through a scheduling system. Um, if you're using you know, other pieces of software, I'm sure you've got a cadence of, of how frequently you train people. Um, but in terms of spaced repetition, the best way to deliver that and the most time effective and efficient is through bite sized pieces um, of content, which is delivered to the learners. They go through that. If you are doing something where you set a pass score, um, you can mandate people need to get a certain score in order to continue on and have passed that. And then when they do, that goes into a spacing algorithm. Um, or if you just have a, a regular kind of teaching cadence for your team, that can come up at the next kind of appropriate uh, teaching or training session by kind of revisiting at the start of any new, new training. Um, and, and that's how we sort of think about um, adding in, you know, micro learning, adding in sort of whisper course uh, elements and, and that sort of, you know, most importantly, what we're talking about is spaced repetition, yeah. which again is an evidence-based learning technique, which is uh, for anyone, I'm sure everyone does know, but it's from, you know, Herbert Evenhouse's uh, forgetting curve and experimentation where he's learning lots and lots of different words um, because he was a crazy educational psychologist from 1850 or whatever it was. I know. Well, yeah, and the thing is that th that one always drives me nuts because it's like he was trying to get people to remember irrelevant information and so sometimes yes. it's taken out of context it's like well we're not trying to teach people irrelevant information and see if they can remember it. but the point still sticks which is breaking this up and making it digestible is an important piece and i think liz as we get into how this can work i think the important point from what you just said and i think we should be doing this in every situation is actually i think sometimes we stop too early when we deconstruct what we're trying to solve so even in terms of we want better manager conversations with their direct reports, that is still too big of a thing to just say, so let's just make one thing about that because really you almost need to break that down further. Not almost, you do and say, well, what is a good conversation between a manager and a direct report? What does that consist of? What are the conversation elements that we need to do? I remember doing this once uh, in, in healthcare for sales, and we actually broke this down to, we were able to take a several hour interaction and actually break it into an entire curriculum that even got down to, okay, this 10 minute portion happens here. And there's four behavioral elements that are critical to success. And we're going to make sure people know what those four are, what good looks like, then they need to practice doing those four well. And that's only one part of the conversation. That's not even the whole conversation, but we really deconstructed this whole thing where, yeah, some people felt like this is overkill for this. Well, in that situation, it wasn't. And you may not need to go to that level of granularity for everything, but I think that process of really breaking down some of the things that are happening is really important. Completely agree. And I think, you know, the other way to look at things is um, if you think about 
your existing talent in your workforce at the moment. I'm sure everyone hopefully has, uh, you know, some very high performing individuals in different departments or sectors. Some people who just kind of anecdotally are the best in inverted commas, uh, you know, people at soft skills, at conversation, at, at informing people. Um, when they leave either through re retirement or churn, you're going to lose a lot of that skill set. So just by them being present in your organization, traditional training uh, in the kind of apprenticeship model says that um, your new recruits or people working with them will get better by kind of observing what they do by adapting to some of their behaviors. Now, if you can actually extract some of the things that they do by taking things like the sales, a call recording, um, and then putting that into a conversation. So what I mean by that in, in really simple terms is with our system, one of the things we've been doing recently is now that a lot of sales conversations are done on Zoom and you've got technology yeah, like you Otter, actually translation, and all this stuff. Exactly. You can transcribe it. You can automatically load it into um, uh, an NLP uh, scenario and you can have not only a sales conversation, but this is, uh, you know, a named person's set way of closing a sale if you want to train that way in your organization. Or we can use standardized kind of sales practices like challenger um or, or you know some you know medic and, and other sort of um, yeah. sales strategies and templates where we can train both the frameworks but also we can look at how people are practically implementing them which is where it gets a little bit more technical but it's no it does but this is and this is part of this we can geek out a little bit on the tech it's my show we can do whatever we want <laughs> but i think this is one of the things that's really 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 powerful about what's happening with machine learning and natural language processing is you know, historically, you might be like, you need to be a closer like Alex. And it was like, how does Alex close? I don't know how Alex closes. And even just the human time of trying to have me listen to, okay, I'm going to listen to how many times Alex closes and try and figure out what it is he's doing. Well, natural language processing and machine learning can do that way faster and more efficiently than a human can and can actually learn, you know what, I've now listened to more conversations about Alex closing deals than anybody could in their lifetime. And I've actually picked up on the patterns and the trends of what is he doing. And I've now created that into a simulation where somebody has to do it and I can give somebody feedback. So it's actually been getting easier to deconstruct things that we've historically gone, I won't know what good is till I see it. And then you see it and go, but I don't really know what made that good. Well, that's where I think the technology is helping. A hundred percent. And I think it's really interesting because, um, you know, even when I, I started Verti, we had a very sort of specific way that we did sales conversations because we're selling a, uh, a virtual reality system. Uh, oh, yeah. we want to, you know, it's, it's quite a technical sale that we're training, uh, you know, new sales professionals for. And yeah. I, I spent a heck of a lot of time, like kind of downloading my brain and downloading what I did so that people kind of see that and then put their own spin on it. And I think it's the same for every organization on the planet. If you think about how traditional sales coaching and training is done is you'll look at um, sales recordings or call recordings. Um, someone might timestamp those in a bit of video software. You might sit down with your sales manager, your sales coach, go through that. But again, unless you are then like immediately putting that into practice, you're not going to be able to retain all that information. And, no. and traditional coaching is kind of We'll focus on the rapport building step, go and implement this, come back in a week or two weeks or when I'm next free because of my, my sales manager bandwidth yeah. and we'll work on that. And, and it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to do in a small team. It's certainly difficult to do at scale. Yeah.
Well, and on top of it, even I just think of the limitations on this because this, and again, it was it was just what we were limited to in the past. But in the past, it might be even if you had that sound snippet of "Here's Alex closing a deal." I want you to be more like this because this is how we want you to do it. The tendency is you listen to it and you're like, "Okay, so I'm gonna robot copy what Alex just said," and and that's it won't work because well, I said the same thing he did, but the tone was different or the timing or the context and, and being able to deconstruct the, what is it that happened so that I can give feedback to someone to go, you actually didn't do that that well, even though you said all the same words and here's how you can improve on that. That's where I see technology being fascinating at actually being able to do that. And instead of just having this limited here, copy this, well, we all, we all know copying this doesn't work. So, but because I we are so going to run out of time on this, <laughs> but I want to break down the three pieces because again, people may be going, okay, conceptually get it, sounds cool, understanding, I'm struggling to understand. So, how does Verti make this work? And you talked, you've got three components to this that I want to talk through in here because I think this will help people see. Okay, so so tools like this, it's not, it could be separate from your current learning ecosystem, but it also can just fit right into exactly what you're doing today, just as a separate nugget or module or whatever, as a, as a placeholder in your current tech. So what are the three pieces? I'll let you describe them since it's your company. Uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, and I think the best way to think about our system is, you know, if, if you remove the technology aspect for, for a second and just think of it as how we're digitizing in-person coaching or training, that, that's yeah. a good place to start. So the three components yeah. are basically a feedback system, um, which is effectively a, a system of forms that you can send out to your workforce. So that will basically allow them to express in, in um, Likert score or free text their own kind of ability um, at training, uh, their, their well-being, um, anything you kind of want to survey your workforce about. Okay. And that is equivocal to sort of doing like a coaching check-in at the beginning, getting people to self-assess, identify what they need to work on, um, and then running that throughout their training to look at improvement from a, a qualitative point of view from the learner's perspective. The, the next portion is then what we call interactive video. So we know that um, video in general has seen a huge uptick over the last year. Huge five, 10 years, particularly during the pandemic, um, where everything is delivered on video. The problem with video is it's not hugely engaging. We know that people are listening. It's to very passive. Slides. Very passive. There's not much active recall going on there unless people are actively bothering to pause the video, go back, test themselves. Um, and if you're me, I will watch things at two or sometimes three speed because I'm so busy um, taking yeah, in what I, I can and rewatching it. So with interactive video, what we do there is we can take a recorded real-world environment or real-world training session, um, put that in, but then make it interactive. So we can apply uh, a, a test question, which might be, what would you do next? We could apply some overlay. Um, we can actually make that video what's called branch. So when they come to a decision point, uh, and that might be when something is happening uh, in a soft skills conversation or on a pre-recorded sales call, the, the viewer, the learner has to make a decision. And again, our system tracks that with our analytics tools and we can see what people are deciding. And, and that interactive video piece does two things. Firstly, it shows people real world environments. So it gives people permission 
to then use what they're seeing. So if you think about a new employee or someone uh, who is completely new to your organization, they won't know how to do anything. They might not have uh, you know, seen your way of doing a sales call. Yep. So you, you run them through that, you test their existing knowledge, you pre-test. There's almost that passive business. shadowing. Exactly right. And, but most importantly, we extract data from that. And yes. we have some off-the-shelf interactive video uh, for things like soft skills or onboarding. Uh, and we also have the authoring tools. So if people want to um, upload their own video library, we've got a sort of a okay. media area. Um, and, and then they can make that interactive. And then the final So they can enhance it. So it's not just purely yes. a passive consumption, but saying, hey, you're observing, you're passively doing this, but we're also making sure you're taking a few things from this experience and that you're on the right track so we can see how you're tracking. Exactly. And I think one, one extra thing I just forgot to mention with the video is you can either use your existing 2D video library, um, but if you do want to adopt virtual reality headsets, um, again, for all the reasons we mentioned, you can use what's called 360 video, which is recorded yeah. with a 360 camera, which increases that level of immersion, increases that level of emotion. It does. Even 2D, even 2D using it, 2D um, or even yeah. 3D on a 2D environment where at least you can move around and see things. It does. I mean, I've done 3D video on a 2D device and it is yeah. helpful to even just be able to see, okay, this is the environment I'm in versus just a static. Here's where I am. Completely. And I think, you know, my, my team will hate me for this, but I think even the reverse I find really effective. So if you're in a, a virtual reality environment where you can move around and yeah. look around, if you can see a 2D <laughs> screen, one of, one of my favorite nope. apps is actually Netflix on, on a VR headset. But again, it goes back to that focus. When you're in a Correct. headset, you are Correct. completely focused on the task at hand. You are not distracted. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And again, uh, you know, without getting too off topic, but again, if you um, are, are looking at things like um, communal teaching session or group teaching sessions in, in a 2D video, you can actually have multiple people from your organization remotely yeah. put on headsets, come in, be there as yeah. avatars and, and comment on things. So that, that's sort of the interactive video piece. And then the final portion, um, which I think we've got some, some clips of, which we can probably show just to help people um, yeah. to understand as well. So um, for anyone watching, what you're seeing now is just a, a quick demo of our virtual human system. So um, you can basically go in and select a virtual human in a scenario. You can then interact with them um, in any type of, of environment, whether that's an office setting or some of the ones you might be seeing on screen now are medical, um, where okay. you are communicating with the patient. Uh, in the healthcare setting, you're also doing things like diagnosing them, um, taking blood, uh, and you're transported into these computer-generated real-world environments. Um, and that was and, the piece that when we were talking about, it's not necessarily only the conversation piece, but it's also the potential of you might be asking people to do something as well um yes. in addition to having the conversation exactly right so i mean the, the you know the, the classic thing there is um if you are you know managing say a performance review or again a sales call you might want to add in some tasks uh, either mid call or, or after the call such as completing a crm to a satisfactory level or taking down notes um or some element of uh, you know, interaction. So you can do that as well with the system, which obviously for healthcare is is used quite frequently. Um, for for soft skills training and business, tends to mainly be kind of seated conversation, uh, yeah. focusing on body language. Okay. Well, and I think the other piece that I want to make sure I, I hit on with that is, you know, with that virtual human, there's there's two elements of that. One is again, it would be comparable to the interactive video where you're seeing this and interacting with elements, or 
You also have a conversational AI component built into that where you can be interacting naturally instead of, okay, I'm presented, which goes back to our point of building that skill of, well, maybe you're fine having the conversation if you're prompted, but maybe you're not totally comfortable yet. Well, you can do that. And then the next step is, okay, now it's free form. You're just having a free form yep. dialogue, whatever that is. And you're using conversational AI to make it an interactive experience. Completely right. And, and you know, that's, that's kind of the, again, the top of Bloom's taxonomy where you're having to actually think about every step of what you're saying. You're having to respond in the moment to the responses. And again, from a, you know, a personalization point of view, um, if someone is coming back in and going through a scenario again, using spaced repetition, um, depending on what they say on the second go, um, the conversation might play out completely differently, uh, depending yeah. on sort of, you know, what their mood is and how they approach it. So really, really exciting from a, a sort of variability point of view. Yeah. And, um, I, I think that, you know, the other point just to touch on very briefly there is with everyone working remotely with with different um you know, uh, language barriers sort of uh, popping up across different organizations, regionally, nationally, internationally, you can also localize um, a lot of the virtual humans quite quickly. Whereas if you think about organizing a, a cross-team role play, um, that would fill lots of people with dread. Very difficult. And from an accessibility yeah. standpoint, it's, it's very difficult. It's very difficult if English isn't your first language. A lot of times we just operate with this, well, that's just how we're going to do it because that's the easiest path. And it's very limiting from a development experience. And I get it. Localization has often historically been very timely and expensive. But I think your point of this is helping democratize that and making that experience easier and more accessible for people is, is an important one. And I think the last piece I want to make sure before we before we run out of time, and Liz, I will answer your question. Um, well, actually, I'll probably let Alex answer it here, too, but is... We, we talked a little bit about this in terms of, so how does this fit into your ecosystem? Now, people can just interact directly with this, but you also mentioned before we went live that you actually can drop this in as a module in like an existing LMS as you know an AICC type object or SCORM, whatever, where yes, it's happening through your platform. So the analytics and the engagement is happening through there. But in terms of, well, our current ecosystem, we drive people here and our objects are here from a learning experience. Sounds like you could just integrate that in. So you may have existing stuff that's not Verti that you're then peppering these into the experience to say, well, you're coming to this point and now you're going to do an actual simulation to practice. Is that accurate? Yeah, completely right. So I think, you know, we're big on our sort of company motto is affordable, accessible education for, for everyone on the planet um, to improve kind of their performance. So one of the things that we are big on is the, uh, you know, the video, the interactive video system, the feedback system and the virtual humans can be embedded uh, anywhere. So you can put it on your website. We've got a, an embed on our website, which is verti.com. If you want to go and try out some of the virtual um, humans or, or interactive video okay. system there. Um, the, the other piece there, of course, is then we can pull in the analytics into any LMS, um, depending on what that is, through through either kind of Scoremex API or, or custom makeup. So um, if, if you're wanting to integrate it in that way for a full kind of LMS, you can do that or you can just use our platform uh, to okay. do that solely. Okay, so flexible. I think, And I think that's an important part because I think sometimes there's a tendency in our industry to try and create the new the new island, the new destination of choice, instead of saying, well, where, where are people? We don't necessarily need to be trying to distract them from what they're doing to go do something else. Sometimes it's valuable, but sometimes we can say, what if we could put it 
where they're already going. And I think that's an important piece. So the last question, because Liz, I don't want you to think I forgot about you because I didn't. Uh, this is a big one. So I'm going to summarize. But Alex, for you, I think we've talked a lot about how we can reduce that, that jump from I know it in my head to now I have to do it in real life. Is there, have you still seen, is there a little bit of a gap that people have to jump where they go, okay, I, I really have simulated and I've done this. Now I actually have to go it in real life. Or have you really been able to dramatically reduce that to the point where it's almost negligible? Yes. I mean, because I'm an unapologetic learning geek and because I'm from a healthcare background, <laughs> um, slightly unusually for a, you know, an LMS startup, we did a couple of research studies, uh, one of which was a randomized control trial, actually, um, a couple of years ago when the company was founded. So two, two you know, points just to kind of answer that question with evidence. So one is um, we looked at one where we were, uh, we basically randomized uh, perhaps of 75 learners um, who were learning how to communicate uh, basic life support skills in, in healthcare workers. Um, and we found that people who went through uh, virtual reality training compared to traditional training actually remembered things for longer three months and six months um, because of uh, elements of the repetition, because of the emotional connect. Um, so, so that was really interesting. And, and they actually retained knowledge by upwards of sort of 230%. Uh, compared to traditional methods such as learning, rereading, um, or, or elements of kind of one-off training where we know that, that yeah. your knowledge fades. And then the other piece on that kind of emotional connect, um, again, we did some studies looking at people getting into high-pressure environments, whether that was communicating um, things in high-pressure stakes um, or, or you know, managing patients in the healthcare setting. And we found that actual like clinical anxiety scores were reduced and stress levels are reduced as well, um, which is really, really powerful in terms of well-being for learners. Um, so, okay. so those are kind of, you know, quite, quite good evidence-based yeah. pieces of results that we've got. No, and I think w w the funny part about it that I think, you know, and, and I love that you've done, of course, of course you did legit, like, research on the topic. Um, but I think one of the things that's interesting, and this is one of the challenges, is that one of the challenges in the research is, when it comes to like life or death, can VR truly make you better than if we just threw you into the environment itself? There's really not a good way to test that because it's not like we can go, all right, we're going to put a bunch of people in a life or death situation with zero VR training. And then we're going to put people in a life or death situation after VR training and see how they responded and compare. It just wouldn't be, it wouldn't be ethical in that sense. So I think it is a little bit of a paradigm, but I think what you hit on is the fact that there is evidence that giving people access to safe simulations to practice and actually put these things in does actually better prepare them to do it in real life. And I think that's, that's powerful, very powerful. Sure. All right. Well, we, we are over time. I could keep going on this for quite a while, but I won't. So I will let you go. Thanks everybody for watching. Alex, thank you so much for joining me and sharing more about what you're doing and how you are making experience more accessible and affordable to the masses. Thank you so much and a pleasure.